0: You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Hawley, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories.
1: Hi everyone, this is Danielle, and this coming Saturday, April 25th, is World Malaria Day. Malaria is a preventable disease and one that kills a child every two minutes. Today I am joined by Margaret McDonald, who is the Executive Director of the UN Foundation's Nothing But Nets campaign, which is the world's largest and most powerful community of supporters and advocates committed to saving lives and defeating malaria. Nothing But Nets has raised an impressive $70 million to help deliver 13 million bed nets, and we'll learn what those are, to families in need, along with other crucial malaria interventions. In addition to raising funds for its UN partners, Nothing But Nets and its supporters advocate for critical malaria funding for the U.S. President's Malaria Initiative and the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. And Margaret has devoted her career to health and children's issues, having previously worked for the One Campaign, the US Coalition for Child Survival, and UNICEF in Botswana. Thank you so much for being here today, Margaret. Thank you, Danielle. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with how you got to where you are today. You've had an incredible social sector career, as I've just articulated. What has it been like working for so many remarkable nonprofits that have operated around the world globally? and would love
2: to hear how you came to Nothing But Net. Sure. Well, thank you for the question. So when I graduated college 20 years ago, uh, I did not have a five or 10-year plan. All I knew was that I wanted to do good in some way, help make the world a better place. I was inspired by my parents' career in public service, but I really had a winding path. It was not a straight shot. You know, I, I got to take advantage of my 20s and worked on a dude ranch in Wyoming and bartended in Ireland and worked as a maid on a boat in southeast Alaska. So I had some fun, took some adventures in keeping myself afloat. But I also got the chance to do some nonprofit fundraising, strategy work for issue-based campaigns, some political campaigns as well. But early in my career, um, you know, when I came back home after, after college and decided I wanted to do good in some way, I wanted to work in the nonprofit sector, whatever that meant, I signed up with a temp agency. And my first assignment was actually with an organization that was doing reproductive health work in sub-Saharan Africa. It was an incredible opportunity. You know, I was the lowest man on the totem pole, as they say, um, but I was able to work with incredible technicians, senior technical leads from throughout Africa on reproductive health. And that really kind of opened my eyes to the world of international development and global health, which frankly, before then I had very little, if any, exposure to. Years later, I ended up going back to grad school, got my master's of public policy because I realized that while I love working one-on-one with people, I really enjoyed policy work, having sort of a systemic, making systemic change. And so I just found myself every assignment, I kept, you know, basically going back to international work, whether it was human trafficking or global health. And so while I was in grad school, um, I ended up getting the opportunity to work with the U.S. Coalition for Child Survival, looking at what are effective advocacy tactics to achieve an end goal, policy change. I got to work with UNICEF in Botswana, um, Southern Africa, looking at children's rights in the context of HIV. And so I just it, it was sort of a you know, a fascination that grew and grew. And so I was lucky enough that when I graduated um, with my master's in public policy, I ended up being able to land a job with the one campaign, which, you know, does incredible work and really advocates on a large range of global poverty and health issues. And while I worked at one, I had the opportunity to travel to Rwanda and Uganda um, with some of my colleagues to see some of the work that we've been advocating for on the ground. And I'll never forget you know being in this one really small remote village, and we had the privilege of joining a community led by their local chief um, who was talking to them about the malaria and talking to them about the importance of sleeping under a bed net, and they were doing that through song and dance, and then we had an, a bed net, which I can talk about later, but essentially bed net helps to protect people from malaria and so and then we got to go into the homes and visit with families, uh, mothers and fathers and grandparents who would talk about how before they received this important life-saving bed net, their children were sick, you know, every few weeks, every month from malaria, and how since they'd received this bed net, um, their lives had been changed. The kids were able to go to school. The parents were able to work. And that really struck me um, about how such a small, you know, relatively small, inexpensive tool could have such a transformative impact on a family and a community. And so that really kind of piqued my interest in malaria, and so, after a number of years of working at the one campaign, um, I had the opportunity to join Nothing but Nets, the United Nations Foundation to work on addressing malaria day in and day out and it's It's been a real privilege
1: and Tell us about the challenge that Nothing But Nets is trying to solve. And, you know, for a lot of folks that are in the US, malaria is a concept and not a reality, right? So why should we care about this disease so much? And what is Nothing But Nets trying to do about it?
2: Sure. And it's a great question. So malaria is actually one of the world's oldest diseases, um, but it is completely preventable and treatable at this point. And history is fascinating. They think that King Tut likely died of malaria, Our first president, George Washington, had malaria. Um, Teddy Roosevelt talks about how his troops were completely wiped out from malaria while fighting in the Spanish-American War. So malaria, well, now it affects nearly half the world's population, but that has come down significantly. We know that in the U.S. we actually had malaria up until 1951. Um, So the Centers for Disease Control... Was actually created to end malaria in the United States, which I find fascinating. The reason it's based in Atlanta is because it was the southeastern United States that were the last the front lines of malaria here in the U.S. So, U.S. has you know had malaria, and actually, the U.S. currently has about 2,000 cases of malaria every year that are imported from when people travel or are deployed overseas. But so what is malaria? So malaria is actually a disease caused by a parasite that's transmitted with the bite of a female Anopheles mosquito. Anopheles mosquitoes tend to bite at night, they say from, you know, dusk to dawn. And so that's why people are particularly vulnerable from contracting malaria while they're sleeping. Malaria disproportionately affects children under five and pregnant women. You know, really, it can affect anyone, um, but it is a disease of poverty in that people who have less access to quality health care are most at risk. Of, of contracting it, but also of getting really sick and dying from it. And this is why the long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets, which essentially is a, provides a physical barrier with insecticide laced in it um, that people can sleep under, that helps to protect them from the mosquitoes and also has the uh, effect of killing that mosquito, so it's less likely to travel to someone else to infect them. So that's why bed nets have been an incredible tool in the fight against malaria. They say that about 68% of the progress we've seen against malaria has been because of the wide-scale distribution of bed nets. So nothing but nets, you know, when we started in 2006, a child was dying from malaria every 30 seconds. Since then, um, you know, Our work, we've helped, like you mentioned, we've helped to raise $70 million, we've provided more than 13 million bed nets to help protect kids, pregnant women, um, and the most vulnerable people from malaria. There's also been incredible infusions of efforts, whether it's the work of our WHO, the UN partners, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, and the President's Malaria Initiative. And all of these partners have worked together to help save more than 7 million lives since the early 2000s. So we've been able to help avert 1 billion cases of malaria and save more than 7 million lives. And so there's been incredible progress against malaria. And now a child dies every two minutes from malaria. So incredible progress, obviously, from from a child dying every 30 seconds to every two minutes. Yet that's obviously still completely unacceptable, given that malaria is a completely preventable and treatable disease. And no one should die from a mosquito bite.
1: When I first read that statistic that a child dies every two minutes, it's just struck me as horrible. And so hearing that it came from a statistic of every 30 seconds, it articulates the progress and also raises the question, what is preventing us from getting a net to everyone who needs it when the consequences are so
2: dire? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So you know, what, what it comes down to, like addressing any global health threat, comes down to political will and resources, Um, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, there are some additional challenges. The mosquito is actually the world's deadliest animal. So it's funny, people assume it's a shark or a tiger or, you know, lions, animals that were taught to fear as children, when in fact, a mosquito is the world's deadliest animal. But anytime you're working to sort of address a global health threat, it really is about sort of political will, policy, resources, you know, funding, partnerships, and of course, then medical and scientific knowledge and know how, you know, everything from developing the technology that goes into a bed net to the understanding, you know, from a cultural perspective, what is it going to take to ensure that every last person receives a bed net? So. I'd say, you know, there has been incredible progress. Like we've said, we've we've went from in the early 2000s, about 2% of people who needed a bed net had it, and now we're over the 50% mark. So we've made, again, an incredible scale up. We, we just celebrated recently the 2 billionth bed net being distributed. So again, that's, you know, that's incredible, but there's still a ways to go. And it is a matter of commitment and resources, both from an endemic country and community perspective Mm -hmm. to donor countries as well, like the United States, who has been an incredible leader in the fight against malaria, an incredible investor. But it really is about needing those resources to be able to get the job done. And so over the course of the last year or so, we've been working with partners to advocate, to say, we need to step up the fight against malaria. We've made incredible progress, but there's still a ways to go. And so... We work to help secure a, a 15% increase for the Global Fund, for example, and a $15 million increase for the President's Malaria Initiative, which will enable them to help scale up and deploy much-needed tools in the fight. But it's it's not enough. Much more is needed, um, and it really is a critical time.
1: Well, right now, of course, public health is... Present on everyone's mind given the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. And some of what you shared about having the commitment and the resources and the political will reminds me of what we're talking about right now with this global Mm -hmm. pandemic. And we don't have the same level of research and education on it as we do on malaria, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, But curious if there are lessons that you would extract from your exposure to how we fight disease on this scale that to consider with the coronavirus pandemic.
2: Sure. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's many similarities and differences between, you know, COVID, coronavirus, and malaria. Uh, But I think the underlying idea is the need to invest in health systems, the need to empower and ensure that our, our frontline health workers have the tools they need to address many challenges, whether that's malaria, Ebola, COVID, Cancer, you know, um, to ensure that health workers have not only their own protection, as we're seeing is the challenge in the case of coronavirus, um, but also to uh, help protect other people. So um, we've definitely seen this, the importance of investing in health system strengthening and global health security coronavirus is another example like malaria is that diseases don't know borders and that in our ever shrinking global world if someone in China or Africa is at risk so are we i think this is definitely a call to action to say we really need to be working together to solve the world's biggest problems and that's you know why organizations like the world health organization or who or the united nations un are so critical And so we've seen, you know, one, an interesting piece is fever is the primary initial symptom of both coronavirus and malaria. And so we're very concerned that if countries or communities put out guidance that you need, if you have a fever, you need to stay home because in the case of coronavirus, there's no suitable diagnostics or treatment. That's a huge problem. We expect to see a huge surge in malaria cases and deaths because um, it's really important that people, if they have a fever, that they do go to a health clinic as to ensure that they can get properly diagnosed and treated for malaria. So, and there's cases, you know, during the, um, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, we saw that malaria cases hugely spiked because people were too scared to seek medical care. Um, we also saw that healthcare workers were between 21 and 32 times more likely to become infected from Ebola than other members of the public and affected communities. So anyway, there's a lot of linkages and synergies, but I think it really comes down to, you know, consistent and adequate funding for global health efforts is not sort of a nice to have, um, you know, it's absolutely critical. And we know that from the U.S. perspective, you know, international development and in global health is less than 1% of the budget but what an incredible investment it helps to protect us and people around the world. Um, So this is definitely another reminder of the importance of that.
1: And a reminder of how interconnected these diseases are, right? I mean, when I, I was thinking about it from a very conceptual the series of factors level, but not that advice given to individuals who might have COVID would counter advice given to individuals who might have malaria. What, how you, you reconcile something like that if you're an individual who is either caring for or might have one of these diseases?
2: Right. So it's a great question. And so actually, the World Health Organization and the head of the Global Malaria Program within WHO, Dr. Pedro Alonso, recently put out guidance around this and said, if you live in an endemic country, the protocol must be that if you have fever, you need to go to a health clinic. So there's been a lot of work behind the scenes working with leaders of malaria endemic countries and communities to say, you know, whereas in the US, obviously we're not vulnerable to malaria, at least on a day-to-day basis. And so the the protocol will be different in the context of the US. There's also guidance being put out to adjust adjust how we do things. So normally bed net distribution would happen at a community level. You would bring together the local leaders and community members. Most of the time, women and children would, you know, get in line to receive their bed net. Well, obviously that would not respect Um, the current protocol around the need to socially distance. So now new guidance is being provided and updated. For example, now they're saying, um, and many of our partners have worked to develop this guidance, that it's actually going to require door-to-door distribution of bed nets rather than people coming together as a community because of the threat that that poses when it comes to coronavirus. Now, we know that door-to-door bed net distribution is far more labor-intensive, far more expensive. So that's a real challenge because, of course, There's limited resources. But so WHO and the Rollback Malaria Partnership to End Malaria, the Alliance for Malaria Prevention, many of our technical partners are working to adapt guidance for the best malaria control programs in light of COVID. Tell us a little bit more about
1: the way that you think about partnerships, because even from what you've just shared, and I know Nothing But Nets works within the UN in partnership with public, private, foundation entities, and clearly individual action, adoption, participation is a critical part of what you do. How do you think about activating all of these different groups and how that works?
2: Yeah, so absolutely. We couldn't get anything done without partnerships, right? So what I love about sort of policy or what, what I love about trying to address big problems is building partnerships with like minded and mission driven organizations and individuals, but recognizing the unique value add that each bring. You know, in our case, we know we look to others for technical guidance like WHO, like RBM like UN partners who are on the front lines of these diseases, but we recognize our area of expertise, which is around, you know, engaging the public, advocating, raising funds to support programs, etc. So I think it really takes everyone uh, wearing their hat, but focused on the same mission to figure out how to tackle big problems. Nothing But Nets has been really lucky in that partnerships have been a part of what we've done from the very beginning. We were actually founded you know, on the back page of a Sports Illustrated column by former Sports Illustrated journalist, Rick Riley, who he had learned, he learned about malaria and at the time a child was dying every 30 seconds and he thought that was outrageous. So he called the UN Foundation and said, hey, I know you guys do some malaria work. I want to write this column, nothing but nets, that draws on the sports metaphor, the basketball metaphor, nothing but net. And I want a call to action. Can you all set up a webpage? And so long story short, UN Foundation created nothing but nets, and within I think it was a month, a million dollars had been raised, and thousands, tens of thousands of people who had never thought about global health, let alone malaria, were then you know invested in this in this nothing but nets movement. And so, what's been great about that is that. From the beginning, we had partnerships with NBA and Major League Soccer. We also had partnerships with faith-based organizations like the United Methodist Church and the Lutherans and the Reform Jewish uh, Jewish movement. So it's been, it truly does sort of take everyone coming together um, to tackle big problems. And everyone has unique talent, skill set, access um, to get the job done.
1: And... You're the coordinator of all this, is that right? You're kind of in the middle, of making sure that folks that are activated need to be activated. Or are there multiple centers of gravity?
2: Nothing. Vanessa's main job is really to help raise funds, voices, and bring together whether it's faith-based organizations, celebrity champions, everyday Americans who care about this together to have a united voice and to say you know, we care that a child dies every two minutes from a preventable, treatable disease. We believe it's unjust for anyone to die from a mosquito bite. Um, And so we help to bring, we help to raise funds. Like we said, we've raised over $70 million to help support the provision of more than 13 million bed nets. But also, despite our name, Nothing But Nets, we actually do more than nets. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bed nets still continue to be sort of our cornerstone, our bread and butter, if you will. But we also provide, we've also funded test and, testing and treatment. We've funded the training of healthcare workers. We essentially work with our UN partners to determine what's most in need and how can we best address and prevent malaria in the context of you know wherever we're working. So we've really found that our real contribution, one of our main contributions is to help protect the most vulnerable people. So we've done a lot of work. With UNHCR and UNICEF to help protect refugees and internally displaced persons, because oftentimes they're not prioritized by the larger uh, malaria prevention efforts. So we've really found that help providing you know the health workers on the front lines working with refugees and IDPs to help protect malaria is a real um, need and a place where we've happily stepped up.
1: Bring us behind the scenes a bit of the organization itself and. I've been asking this question to a lot of nonprofit executive directors right now. In general, a lot of employees join nonprofits as a way to be inspired and have purpose. And we're in a moment in time globally where the work environments have changed and the challenges feel more challenging. And what you just described in terms of what coronavirus is doing to malaria treatments and protocol is a great example of it. How do you think about inspiring your team and rallying your team when everyone is likely disparate?
2: Yeah, it's a great question and really important. And certainly coronavirus has challenged us in new ways. I mean, on a very personal tactical level, you know, um, very intentional about, you know, ways of communicating with the team. So we have, a, you know, team text chain where we send each other uplifting messages or memes or, you know, check in with each other to make sure everyone's doing okay for our co- conference calls, you know, ask everyone to use video as much as possible so that we can actually connect and see people. And I think just being really honest um, and and raw. Um, I've always been I'm kind of like an open book. I'm I'm very honest and hopefully authentic. And I think that comes across. And so I'm, I'm as a leader of the campaign, I feel like it's important to, to be honest and open and authentic, and share the challenges that I may be experiencing, um, whether that's working from home with three kids, you know, trying to trying to homeschool slash parent, and or sharing, you know, about a loved one I'm concerned about. Because I think when you as a leader are open and honest, that helps your team members recognize that it's okay to do the same. It's okay to be forthcoming and share and say that it's you know things are hard and it's not okay and we're worried. But in terms of, you know, what's inspiring, I always look back to one, everything that we've been able to do together as a team. Um, we just held right before things were shut down. We held an incredible, our annual leadership summit where we brought together about 150 people from 33 states, plus Washington, DC for two days of learning and knowledge sharing and training. And then we deployed our champions on Capitol Hill so that they could let their members of Congress know that they care about the fight against malaria, that while malaria may not be an issue in rural kentucky or you know midtown manhattan um, it's an issue that they care about and uh, we had over 150 meetings on Capitol Hill to talk to policymakers about the need to invest in malaria programs specifically the Global Fund and President's Malaria Initiative. So I think it's important to sort of draw on recent successes and wins to be reminded of all that can be accomplished when we come together and then also to to look ahead to what is possible. And I know our team is really united and mission focused on working to be the generation to end malaria, you know, working to continue the progress made against malaria to ensure that we can help, whether it's a country like Haiti, which is close to eliminating malaria, uh, or a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is one of the second most endemic country in the world, uh, where refugees and IDPs are greatly at risk. You know, we have focus, right? Because we have clear, tangible goals of helping to control malaria, helping to end malaria in country and regional level, and working towards the longer term goal of malaria eradication, um, which we all believe in and are working towards in partnership with many others. Well, and one of the things that
1: I have found inspiring as I've heard you talk about this is how large this challenge is, but how solvable a problem it is and how we have what we need to address it. And so for the folks listening to this podcast, if they're interested in getting involved in the fight to end malaria from an individual level, how could they learn more? What actions should they take? What would you recommend to them?
2: Absolutely. So like you said, that is one of the amazing things about malaria. There are some issues in this world that are really difficult to to tackle, Malaria is a disease where there's very specific things that can be done to help address it, and so I would welcome anyone you know listening to join nothing but nets, whether it's by making a donation so every ten dollar donation helps to provide two bed nets, each bed net you know protects up to two to three people from malaria. every five dollar donation helps to test and treat a child from malaria so Really relatively small amounts of money can, can make a huge difference in the lives of children and families and communities. We also have an incredible network of advocate champions who engage their members of Congress and let them know that this is an issue they care about. And whether that's joining our annual leadership summit every year in March or... Meeting with your member of Congress in in district or in the state in which you live, or calling them, or tweeting at them, and, and showing signs of support that there are American constituents that care about this disease and want the U.S. to continue to be a strong leader. There's many ways to take action to be involved, and so I'd certainly welcome anyone and everyone to join us. You can go to nothingbutnets.net or email us at info at net. Fabulous. Tell us what what's the best part of your day. Well, I'd say in in light of COVID, um, the best part of my day, and this is, you know, there's many horrible things about the world in which we're living and that are scary and and upsetting. And and I'm constantly thinking about families who are less fortunate than mine, um, because the brightest part of my day is having all day with my kids. I have a four, six and nine year old at home that I'm homeschooling slash parenting while trying to work full time. And the the amount of joy and laughter and silliness that comes with being a parent is hard to hard to beat. And I think that's in part what inspires me so much in my work with Nothing But Nets and that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, whether it was, a you know, the good, the bad, the ugly day, (laughs) um, putting my children to bed at night. You know, and whatever the routine is, singing a song or reading them a book or rubbing their back, bedtime is supposed to be a time of safety and security and peace and comfort. And I think about, you know, the mothers and fathers and grandparents, caregivers, that when they put their children to bed at night, they're actually subjecting them to a potentially life-threatening mosquito bite. And that, you know, that haunts me, but it also motivates me uh, to to do better and to do more that I would definitely say, you know, my kids are the best part of any day. It's uh, incredibly
1: inspiring, right? Because we, a lot of us have that experience of putting the ones that you love to bed, whether that's, you know, folks of the older generation or the younger. And that is, uh, it's a, it's a moment where you think you're sending folks off into comfort and knowing that that's not the case around the world is something that you can really empathize with. And I was reading this past weekend, The New York Times had an article about how individuals are staying sane (laughs) in this environment. and, And that when you have a sense of purpose and you're serving others, that you are happier and you're more emotionally stable because that's such a human part of the experience. So your call to action, I think, is a real part of how we keep our days sane and have some joy and purpose in them. So I so appreciate you sharing that. And a little bit of your work and background
2: with us today. It's just been inspiring and really eye-opening. Well, thank you. No, I think that's, I always try to say, you know, act locally, think globally, um, but there's also ways to act globally as well. And I think, especially now, you know, I know I'm trying to do my part locally, donating food, money, old clothes, you know, to families in need but also right-taking action on global topics. I think it is possible to sort of act and think um, locally and globally at the same time. And and thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune into our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.